All right. Well, good morning, everyone. So we are going to keep going through the New Covenant. Um, like I said, Pastor's printing out the handouts. He'll, he'll get them here in just a second. It's the same ones from last week. Um, we are going to start out in uh, Luke 22, looking at the Lord's Supper. We're going to finish up the, um, the Lord's Supper and looking at the sacraments and move through uh, the rest of the New Covenant. But before we do that, let me open us up in some prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Uh, We thank you for this um, opportunity to worship you, to give you thanks and praise. We pray that you would be with us in our study of the sacraments and uh, continuing in the New Covenant and our our larger catechism. We pray that we would learn more of you and um, your grace and your mercy to us. I pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I apologize again for my voice and the coughing. It's, uh, it's just this season. I was up in uh, Cedarville this weekend, so it was just constant barrage of nastiness. So, All right, so I'm going to reread uh, Luke 22 and Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper just so it's fresh in our minds, um, and we'll look uh, back at that. So beginning, this is Luke 22, beginning in verse 14. <clears throat> and when the hour came, he reclined at table. And the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. So last week we looked particularly at verse 15. Um, how Jesus earnestly desired to eat the Passover meal with his disciples um, and the significance of that. But afterwards, Jesus does something. He adds something, and it really catches the disciples' attention. He does something that's never been done in 1,444 years of Passover meals. He adds something that hasn't been done in 1,400 years of Passover meals. So the disciples, right, they're still eating their lamb, right? They've got the taste of bitter herbs rolling around in their mouths. Everything's hunky-dory, okay? And then Jesus drops that bomb in verse 17. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you now, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So in this moment, Jesus institutes the first Lord's Supper of the new covenant. Now, let's talk about the significance of the bread and the cup, or the the wine. The bread and the wine is not mystical, okay? It doesn't mystically become his body and blood, it's impossible, right? Most of us know this. For one, Jesus is standing right there in front of them, right? The disciples would never have thought to ask, 
Master, um, point of clarification, sir. Um, when you say this bread is my body, um, you don't actually mean that uh, you turned into the bread, do you? No. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm asking for Peter. He was actually asking. I'm just curious. Nor would any of the first century Jews have thought that, okay, that Jesus actually turned into the elements. This is uh, transubstantiation or a um, little bit different version, consubstantiation for the Lutherans. Jesus regularly used, uh, utilized metaphors okay, concerning himself. John 10.9, Jesus says, I am the door. Right? Did the disciples or anyone else for that matter, even today, actually think that Jesus was a door? No. Okay? Or even that he could be turned into one? No. Okay? Of course not. So if it's not a literal transformation of the elements, what do we have going on here? Well, in the bread, we have a picture of the bruised servant of Isaiah 53. Okay? And here's the thing. As first century Jews, the disciples would have immediately thought about the two constituent parts in temple sacrifices. Okay? The body and the blood. Okay? The body that would correspond to the body of the animal and the blood that would correspond to the blood that was drained out of the animal. Okay? The body was given to the priest and the blood was sprinkled on the altar. Now, regarding the body, flip with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. Look at verses 1 through 7. Hebrews 10, beginning in chapter... Uh, verse 1, sorry. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continuously offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So the author of Hebrews right, is saying that Jesus' body is the real sacrifice. The further implication of that would be that the blood of bulls and goats did not forgive one single sin. Over 1,400 years of the Mosaic sacrificial system, not one drop of a bull's blood or a goat's blood forgave one single sin. Those animal sacrifices merely symbolized the payment for sin. They did not accomplish it. No animal could possibly be worthy of paying the price for man's sin. A permanent sacrifice is needed to deal permanently with sin. So the body of Christ was brought into this world to deal with that. So that he could be the permanent sacrifice for sin. And in Luke 22, Jesus is saying, I am the real, actual sacrifice for sin. For all of that sin. This is my body, which is given for you. For you is the language of substitution. 
of vicarious sacrifice, substitutionary atonement. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, you'll remember I said this meal pictures the bruised servant, right, of Isaiah 53. Listen to verses 4 through 6 here and pay careful attention to the, the body imagery as I read this. Okay? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him he was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we see here clearly, right, how the suffering servant acted as the substitute for his people and bore in his own body the bitter consequences of their sin, right? He was stricken, smitten, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded. All those words we see there in Isaiah 53. This is my body for you. Jesus is the real sacrifice for people's sins. But what about the blood? Another element that we read in Luke 22. Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He's identifying his death with the fulfillment of the promises that God has made in the new covenant announced back in Jeremiah 31, verses 31-34 that we looked at. In other words, Jesus is saying that tomorrow, the very next day after this meal, he's going to accomplish what God promised to Jeremiah 600 years ago. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, there will be a new covenant. New spirit. The law of God will be written on our hearts. Jesus is telling the disciples that when he dies tomorrow, when his blood is shed, it will be to bring about all of this. And he uses the, the cup to emphasize this. But this is not the only time in Luke 22 that Jesus uses the language of cup, actually. Look down at verse 41, a little bit further down in the chapter, in Luke 22. <clears throat> and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed and sang, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And what is the cup here that Jesus is referring to? Well, it's the wrath of God, right? But there's an Old Testament background to this imagery here that, that paints a pretty chilling picture. Um, look back in Isaiah again. Let's look at Isaiah 51. I have a tag here. Go look at verses seven, beginning of verse 17. Okay. <clears throat> Isaiah 51, beginning of verse 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has born. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have appeared to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. 
They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. <clears throat> so God, God says, I have put the cup of my wrath to your lips and made you drink it to the dregs. The idea is that God has poured out his wrath on the people for their sins. But in verse 22, the people won't get it anymore. Who gets it? Well, verse 23 says it's the enemies of God. In this case, it's the, it's the Babylonians. So God is saying, even though the Babylonians are your tormentors right now, and you're drinking the cup now, there's going to come a day, that time, that Daniel will say, God has found you wanting, and tonight your kingdom will end, where they will drink it. But prophetically, the cup of wrath is taken away from Israel and given to another. And it's applied redemptively in the most shocking way. Because at this point in Luke, Israel is wanting it to go to Rome, right? I mean, we, we read in Revelation how Rome is, is called Babylon, right? But what's so shocking is that in Luke, we see that Jesus is the one who will drink the cup of the wrath that his people deserve. And in so doing, he will establish the new covenant in his blood. Jesus is explaining his substitutionary atonement with the bread and the cup, the bread and the wine. The act of the atonement is the long-awaited event that will bring about the realization of God's long-awaited promises in the new covenant. But it's the mediator, the Messiah, who is cursed so that God's people can enjoy the intended blessings. Let me wrap up the sacraments with this, this quote from Calvin. really like it. Go on the second page. Yeah, okay, this is kind of a long one, but I really like this. <clears throat> Should we regard baptism and the Lord's Supper as superfluous? Not at all. For anyone who shall actually and without flattery acknowledge his weakness, of which all of us, from the least to the greatest, are conscious, will gladly avail himself of those aids for his support. We ought indeed to grieve and lament that the sacred truth of God needs assistance on account of the defect of our flesh. But since we cannot at all once remove this defect, anyone who according to his capacity will believe the word will immediately render full obedience to God. Therefore, let us learn to embrace the signs along with the word, since it is not in our power to separate them. I love that quote from Calvin. So according to Calvin, God gave us the signs because our faith is weak. Right? God gave us signs to aid and strengthen our weak faith. So if God gave us these sacraments, we must need them. Right? We call them a means of grace for a reason. They are means by which God confers his favor. 
God confers his favor through faith, and the sacraments are designed to strengthen that faith. Now, at this point, I want to switch gears a little bit. I want us to come out of the finer details of things and take a more broad bird's-eye view of the covenant. Because our task before us at this point is still to understand how Jesus is the substance of the new covenant and to recognize the covenant's fullness or efficacy to all the nations, uh, to use the language of the confession. And I I thought a good way for us to do that would be to to survey kind of the New Testament and its use of of diatheke. That's our our Greek term for covenant. I wrote them up here, too, in case you were curious. I know we got a couple of Greek nerds in here. Do you know there are 33 appearances of the term diatheke in the New Testament? And, and how, the, in, how that word functions. Diatheke appears 17 times, just for your essence, just for your situational awareness. 17 times in the book of Hebrews, nine times in Paul's writings, and once in Revelation. Um, six in the Synoptic Gospels and the book of Acts. Um, and we're going to very slowly and in great detail go through every single one of them. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. But I, I do think it would be helpful uh, to examine just a couple of them. Um, and see what great truths that we can draw from them. But before we do that, I want to talk about the naysayers. Because here's the thing. There's some scholars who would argue that that term, covenant, is no longer really an important theological category in the New Testament. Um, No, right? Weird people. They would argue that it was transformed or outmoded in early Christianity. Uh, One such scholar, probably don't know who he is, but... His name's Delbert Hillers. Uh, He wrote a book in the late 60s called uh, Covenant, The History of a Biblical Idea. Okay, Um, And I'm I'm paraphrasing here, say that up front, but he essentially said to to call what Jesus brought a covenant is like calling conversion circumcision. Okay. Um, Now, uh, yeah, no, that's not right. Okay, at all. Okay. In fact, the new covenant uh, is seen to be fulfilled in the New Testament. Right? When the term covenant appears in the New Testament, it's very significant. Most modern translations will translate diatheke, okay, I don't know if you can see that over there, um, when you get to the Greek, uh, as covenant. Okay? Uh, and it's berit in the uh, Hebrew that's going from um, uh, the Hebrew to your Septuagint in your Latin. Okay? Um, <clears throat> Now, there's actually a bit of debate here regarding the translation of diatheke. Some actually think it should be translated testament, kind of like a last will and testament. Some think it should be translated as a promise or a disposition. Um, But I'm going to argue that I think the correct way to translate diatheke every time in the New Testament is covenant. Uh, more often than not, those who, who try to argue otherwise, I think, in my opinion, seem to miss the significance of the use of the term covenant as it's applied in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, some Reformed theologians disagree on translating covenant in passages like uh, Galatians 3.15, Hebrews 9.16. Um, <clears throat> the ESV actually translates diatheke uh, in Hebrews 9.16 as will. Or like a last will and testament, uh, and I think I think it's absolutely incorrect. Um, 
I think it should be covenant. And that's actually one of the ones that I want to take a look at, uh, at that text in a minute. Um, but first, open, uh, flip with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Here in the use of the term covenant, we're going to see how the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. Okay? We're going to encounter here the earliest occurrence of the term covenant in the chronology of events unfolding in Jesus' life. Okay? Uh, so start in verse 67. So flip over in Luke chapter 1 a bit. So Luke is recording something in verse 67 here and following before Jesus was born. Okay? So Luke chapter 1 beginning in 67, he says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So Luke sees John's birth or role as part of God visiting his people, right, and accomplishing his redemption. He's tying it back to the hopes of the new covenant. He goes on, he says, And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So we have here a passage where he sees the birth of John the Baptist as a, a kind of complex of events. And these events are designed to accomplish God's Old Testament plans to fulfill the promises of his people. Now, here comes the kicker. Verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So, again, this is the first time covenant is used chronologically in a gospel narrative. <clears throat> and the first time it's used, it's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. John the Baptist is coming into this world, and therefore Jesus is coming into this world to fulfill the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. This redemptive visitation is to show mercy to our holy fathers, right? And fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. And this passage actually alludes to uh, Psalm 105, uh, verses 8 through 10, uh, and verse 42. <clears throat> this verse is saying that the redemption that God is bringing about um, through Jesus, that, that John is going to be the messenger of, okay, is a fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. That is huge. That's huge. So Jesus' redemptive visitation into this world, described by Luke here, by Zechariah, is God's faithful response to his covenant with Abraham. And that gets picked up again by Peter in Acts chapter 2, or sorry, 3, uh, verse 25, I think. Luke also makes it clear here that the idea of covenant is not only to be found in the, the synoptic gospels at the Lord's Supper, right? Covenant is all throughout the scriptures in other places. Flip over to Matthew 26. Here we'll see how the Mosaic Covenant is fulfilled. Now, I know, I know we've looked at this account once already in Luke, but I want us to notice a couple of important distinctions here at this, this Lord's Supper account. Remember, part of our catechism answer specifies that Christ is the substance of the New Covenant, and this is primarily demonstrated through His blood, right? Look at verse... Um, Beginning of verse 27. Did I say... Wait a minute. What did I tell you to flip to? Okay, I have it wrong in my notes. 
Was I right? Okay. Yeah, sorry, because I have another thing in my notes here. It's wrong. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Sorry. <clears throat> I need to fix my notes. I have 22 written in my notes. All right. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> and he took a cup, beginning in verse 27. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So that phrase in verse 28, this is my blood of the covenant, recalls the words of the sacrificial inauguration of the Mosaic covenant at Mount Sinai. Okay, Exodus 24, verse 8 says, Behold the blood of the covenant. Okay, It's here that Moses is sacrificing young bulls. He reads the, the book of the covenant. Uh, right in the presence of the people. He's sprinkling the blood of the bull on the people, okay? and he declares it to be the blood of the covenant. Therefore, the covenant was ratified, sealed, by the blood of the slaughtered bulls. So in Matthew Lord's Supper narrative, the significance of the cup is in some way related to Moses' sprinkling of the blood at Mount Sinai. Three things. Three things I want you to note here, right? Now... It's the Mosaic Covenant that Jesus is fulfilling. Okay? Before we saw in Luke's Gospel how Jesus fulfilled the Abrahamic Covenant. Now we see here how he's fulfilling the Mosaic Covenant. Second thing, the only difference between the Septuagint version of Exodus 24, verse 8, and Matthew 26, 8 here, with, with the Behold the Covenant, the Blood of the Covenant language, is that word, my. That's the only difference. In Matthew... Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. So there's an explicit connection between Jesus' blood and the blood at Mount Sinai. This indicates that the blood at Sinai pointed forward to Jesus' blood. So Jesus is fulfilling the provisions of the Mosaic covenant. Third, Matthew indicates that phrase at the end of verse 28, for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew points out that the point of spilling Christ's blood was for the forgiveness of sins. And he connects it back to the Mosaic Covenant. Flip now with me, please, to uh, Mark chapter 14. <coughs> Here we're going to look at the connection to the suffering servant with this covenant language. Beginning in verse 23. All right, Mark 14, verse 23. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So we have similar language as we saw in Matthew. We have that phrase, the, the blood of the covenant there. The phrase uh, for the forgiveness of sins is, is absent. Uh, but what do you notice? In verse 24, Mark adds the words, which is poured out for many. That phrase likely harkens back to Isaiah 53.12 and the servant who suffered for the many. You see, the many was a, a latter prophet technical term uh, for the remnant of Israel. Uh, these are the people who remained faithful in their covenant with God. Uh, these are the ones who God was, was going to rescue, right? 
Not everyone was a, was a corrupt sinner who abandoned the Lord and, and fell into idolatry, okay? This, this is the many, okay? So this is, this is not only an appeal to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, but also an appeal to the many, the, the remnant of Israel. To use the language of Jeremiah, these are the ones God's new covenant or future blessings would come upon. And the many also appeals to all of the elect, those who God would save. Many, right? It's not the whole world. Jesus doesn't die for every single person. He dies for many, for his sheep. And speaking of the new covenant, turn with me to Luke uh, 22. Back to Luke 22. And uh, look at verse 20 again. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So like Matthew and Mark, the language is similar. Luke uses the term poured out and covenant. However, there are a couple important differences. Luke introduces the word new here. Um, it's the new covenant in my blood. And that brings, us, uh, brings with it some significant realities for the rest of the verse. In fact, there are two observations that we need to make here. Number one, because it is the new covenant, Luke emphasizes the vicarious nature of what Jesus is going to do with the words, for you. Okay? With Matthew and Mark, it's for many. Right? With Luke, it's for you. He's emphasizing the substitutionary, the vicarious nature of Jesus' work on the cross. Secondly, Luke identifies the cup with the new covenant. Okay, and this goes right back to that new covenant language used in Jeremiah 31. Matthew and Mark link that covenant language to the Mosaic covenant. But Luke here in verse 20 takes the language to the new covenant. So, at this point in scripture, right, we haven't even gotten out of the synoptics yet, and in the person and work of Christ, the very substance of this new covenant, right, is seen as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the new covenant, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. It becomes clear how all these ideas, right, are linked together. And it's important to appreciate how God has providentially and meticulously woven this together throughout time. Now, couple other important texts I want us to visit. Uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 3, please. <clears throat> there are quite a few uses of the term diatheke in the, within the Pauline corpus, and some of them we've already studied in previous lectures, but for today, I really just want to focus on this one. Um, let's start with this first section, verses um, 5 and 6. 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I especially wanted to look at this passage because this is the first time we get a comparison between the old and the new covenants. Paul says our adequacy is from God, and he made us adequate for a new covenant. Just as it was for Moses, Paul's sufficiency is not of himself, 
but through God's grace. And that same sufficiency is what makes him and us adequate to be ministers of this new covenant. Paul's drawing on that new covenant of Jeremiah 31, that language, that, that, that ministers of a new covenant. Okay? He's reaching back to the prophecies of Jeremiah, and he's contrasting that service with the old covenant established at Sinai with Moses. Okay? It's clear when he says old covenant, he's, he's talking about Moses, okay? the Mosaic covenant at Sinai, especially the, the Torah. He's not talking about all of the, the Old Testament covenants. Okay? He's specifically talking about the Mosaic covenant. We are servants, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, which gives life. Okay? Now, the verses that follow expand on this theme. Look down with me there, starting in verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So, Paul demonstrates the superior glory of the new covenant ministry by pointing out the distinctions of the older ministry and the new ministry. All right, we have a glory contrast between the two religious administrations. Moses' ministry is actually described as a ministry of death. Not because there was something wrong with it. Quite the opposite. The law is, is a very good thing. It's given by God. The problem was the people. They're a stiff-necked people. We still are. The law does not have the power to save them. Yet the law had so much glory, right, the people couldn't even look at Moses' face. They were, they were afraid. It was painful. But now we have the new covenant, the ministry of the Spirit, which has even more glory. This covenant brings righteousness, not condemnation. In it, we see the glorious presence of God's power. This covenant, its, its sacraments, its administration of grace, its glory, all of it, is better in every way. That's what our catechism answer means when it says, in which grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness, or efficacy, evidence to, to all the nations. As Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 3, the new covenant far surpasses the old covenant. Now, turn with me please to Hebrews chapter 9. So the book of Hebrews uses the term diatheke more times than the rest of the New Testament. Okay? The author of Hebrews is clearly concerned about comparing and contrasting Judaism with Christianity. And, and to be honest, a lot of these texts we've already looked at. Um, the first use of diatheke comes up in Hebrews 7, verse 22. The author's discussing uh, the superiority of Christ's priesthood over the Aaronic. Um, uh, Jesus' priesthood is, of course, according to the order of Melchizedek. And just to anticipate any questions, um, to be honest, Scripture doesn't give us much information on the Melchizedek priesthood. He's mentioned in Genesis 14. Uh, he blesses Abraham, to which afterward Abraham offers him a tithe. Um, and he becomes king, uh, Abraham, uh, sorry, he becomes king of Salem, which uh, later becomes Jerusalem. That's a 
about the extent of our knowledge. Um, and we're told here in Hebrews that it was a higher, priest, higher priestly order than the Aaronic priesthood. Um, and so Jesus brings a change of law and a, and a better hope. His priesthood is superior because it was established by a divine oath from God, and therefore a better covenant. Hebrews 8.6 addresses how Jesus mediates a better covenant since it was enacted on better promises. Um, and we will address Christ as a mediator in more detail in our next question. What I really want to focus on is chapter 9, verses 15 through 18. Uh, I know we have a few Greek nerds, uh, I mean students, in here. Um, so hopefully y'all will appreciate this, so at least some of you. Because here we're going to see an example of how it's important to translate the term diatheke correctly as covenant. Um, and I, this is, I think, really important for everybody. Um, now, I'm reading out of the ESV. I do like this translation. I mentioned before, um, I think their translation in verses 16 and 17 is incorrect. Um, they use the term will, like a, like a last will and testament. Um, some do think it should be translated testament. Some think it should be promise or disposition. But in Scripture, it should always be translated as covenant in the New Testament. Uh, and I'll explain why. Now, I'm not trying to put down the ESV translation. Um, they're, 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 those translators are by no means slouches, okay? Um, in fact, I, I, I know some of them, um, and they are way smarter than I am, especially when it comes to the languages, okay? Translation work is very hard, okay? Uh, but again, I, I think they made a mistake here. Okay, let's look at verses, start in verse 15, Hebrews 9, verse 15. <coughs> Pastor's over there whipping out his Greek Bible, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get called out here in a minute if I'm wrong. All right, Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called, many, uh, sorry, called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Again, I'm reading out of the ESP. For where a will, that's diatheke, for where a diatheke is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will, a diatheke, for where a diatheke takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So the ESV, the way it does it, it goes, in verse 15 you have covenant, and then in verse 16 you have a will, or last will and testament. Verse 17 you have a will, last will and testament, and then you go back to covenant in verse 18. Okay. Now, why would they do this? Let me, let me try to give some credit where credit is due here. Let me see if I can rationalize this. Well, for one, there is a mention of an inheritance in verse 17, or I'm sorry, verse 15, right? Um, that would correlate with the idea of a last will and testament. Okay. Uh, secondly, the idea in verses 16 and 17 that, that diatheke is activated, initiated right upon its, its master's death. I'm sorry, maker's death, um, where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established, right, with, with a last will and testament. That kind of makes sense. You, you have the idea, you have to have the idea of a dead person before you can have the inheritance of a will. Um, but there are difficulties with this view. In fact, there are four. Number one, verse 15 views Christ as a covenantal mediator 
Testaments don't have mediators. Okay. Number two, the connective word for, which is gar in the Greek, <clears throat> introducing verses 16 and 17, suggests that whatever these DFAK are in verses 16 and 17, that was, that was mentioned back in 15, right? It, they're the same. It's the same DFAK. And in verse 15, it was clearly covenant. Therefore, in verses 15 or 16 and 17, it should still be covenant. Number three, the whole point of chapter 9 is concerned with a covenant inauguration ceremony. And if the DFAK in verses 16 and 17 are last will and testaments, it doesn't make sense for the logic or flow of the whole overall chapter. The whole overall argument kind of doesn't make sense anymore. Here's my last argument here. If DFAK is translated singular, as it is here in the ESV, then there's another odd Greek phrase that pops up in the plural. When you look at verse 17 where it says, for a will takes effect only at death, the Greek says epinekros, which means over dead bodies. Okay? So we have a will takes effect epinekros, over dead body. A will takes effect over dead bodies. For a last will and testament to take effect, you only need one dead body, not multiple. So when you translate DFAK as covenant consistently, all these problems go away. The whole context argues that we should use covenant. Okay? Bearing that in mind, covenant fits very well with verses 16 and 17. Two, two features, I think, specifically. The word established that we read can also mean represented. Okay? That means verse 16 would roughly translate as, for where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be represented. This would be the symbolizing of the oath of self-malediction that we saw in Genesis 15. Okay? That would also mean in verse 17, that it would read, for a covenant takes effect only over dead bodies, epinecros. Okay? That would hearken back to the slaughtered animals right, that you have in the covenant-making ritual. So, again, I, I, I think there are good reasons to render this as covenant. You can, you can say that I'm out to lunch. That's fine. Um, but in this text from Hebrews 9, we're to understand that the institution of the new covenant actually took place at the time of Christ's death. Finally, last, turn with me to, uh, I want to look at one more use of the term covenant. Uh, Revelation 11. And we'll, we'll stop here after this. <clears throat> Revelation 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles, pleas of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So, just for a little context here, right? The seventh trumpet, the seventh trumpet has sounded. The final revelation has been introduced. 
and the temple, the Holy of Holies, is now opened. And inside we see the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in the Old Testament, the Ark symbolized the presence of God. But here, John uses it to stress God's covenantal faithfulness in the fulfillment of the promises and to remind his people of their access to him, right, which has been established as a result of the Lord keeping and fulfilling his covenant promises. What we have pictured beautifully here is the relational significance of the covenant, the fellowship that God's people get to enjoy now with their Lord. It's covenantal. Our fellowship with our triune God is the result of fulfilled covenant promises. It is assured by God's covenant faithfulness. And it's prefigured by the ark, which appears here in Revelation. Now, let me wrap up this, this section, this, this use of covenant, um, with just some big takeaways for you, right? So the New Testament writers see Jesus fulfilling the Abrahamic promise, right, and interpreting his death in light of the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? Um, authors like Luke link Jesus' arrival with even the Davidic Covenant, and they solidify for us that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was a fulfillment of all the Old Testament covenants and prophecies. Okay? The history of redemption is best understood in covenant terms, and it's specifically linked to Jesus' work in the New Covenant. Um, for, uh, for there, sorry, for there, we are guaranteed the forgiveness of our sins. Now, to wrap our, our discussion on the new covenant, we'll look at this next week. I want to talk about Christ's work on the cross. We're going to look, look at the cross, and that's how we will end the new covenant, and that's how we'll end question 35, actually. And then we will move on, finally, to more questions. <laughs> All right, does anybody have any questions about what we went over today? Sure. Yeah, and, and there are, I mean, the ESV is not the, the be-all, end-all of translations. It's, it's not. Um, I, I, I like it. I, think, I do think it's a good translation. Um, I look at other translations when I'm doing other work. You know, I like the King James. I like the NASB. Um, on a rare occasion, I'll look at the NIV. But, um, uh, yeah, I just wanted you guys to get your feet a little bit wet with translation work and see, especially with covenant language. Um, anyway. Oh, gosh. Three hands went up over here. I was just going to ask where you, guys, where you pulled the Calvin quote. Mm. It was from his uh, institutes. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Confession uses 
the word testament mm-hmm. in one section. How should how should uh, how should we understand the proper use of the word testament? I guess is my question. Yeah, I think it would depend on the context of this. Yeah, where where are you ever reading it or the scripture? Yeah. I mean, it's not wrong to use the word testament, certainly. Um, it would just depend on what you're translating and where, where you're at in the, yeah. I think, Will, did you have a question? It's very related. Okay. Um, so I was looking at the King James parallel and all those passages you were reading, and it's almost 100% testament instead of covenant. Mm-hmm. There, like I said, there's three different ways you could translate that word, and it would depend on the, the context. But let's say, like, in the time of the Puritans, did they use the word as covenant? In that context, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Any more questions? Let me pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your new covenant of grace that has indeed um, been inaugurated by the blood of Christ, that we may have forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for your word that we can study and discuss. We thank you for this covenant, Lord. pray that you would be with us in our worship of you today. Please be with our pastor as he brings us your word. Pray that our time of fellowship would be fruitful and enjoyable. We pray all this in Christ's precious name. Amen.